you, you'll see it there, Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20. And just as a reminder to bring us back up to speed from where we were last Sunday, last Sunday was the introduction of Jesus' preaching ministry, where he offered that invitation in verses 14 and 15. You'll see it just there directly before our passage this week, that the kingdom of God is at hand and, and everyone who hears should repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus gave this invitation. And now, Mark 1, 16 through 20, this is the account where Jesus calls his first disciples. So Mark chapter 1, look with me, starting in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, here's a key verse for our time this morning if you want to underline it. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask now especially that you, by your Spirit, would enable us to see the truth about Jesus and about what it means to follow him in your word. We know that these words were written for our instruction this morning. So give us minds that are attentive to your word. Give us hearts that are eager to believe and give us hands that are ready to walk in obedience, however you would lay that out for us. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. What did you expect? I'm sure that many of us have heard or asked ourselves that question at some point throughout our lives. Perhaps we took a job that a few months in we realized was not what we thought it would be, and we are asking that question, what did I expect? Perhaps you took a class in school that you thought was going to be one level of difficulty and it turned out to be another and your professor was sitting there asking you, what did you expect when you signed up for this class? Maybe as Brooke and I are going to find out here in a couple months and Stephen and Beth soon after that, when you became young parents and you looked at each other and asked, what did we expect? Now, inherent within that question is the reality. Thank you, Scooter. You can laugh at us when that time comes. (laughs) Inherent in that question is the the truth that oftentimes the reality that we're placed into does not meet our expectations. That coming into something, we have one view of it, and then when we get into it, we have another that oftentimes it's a little bit harder, a little more difficult than we thought it was going to be, and we find ourselves asking that question, what did I expect? What have I gotten myself into. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that that question can also be asked as it relates to your Christian life. That however you came into the faith, if you are in fact a believer in Jesus, 
there will probably come a time where you might be asking yourself that question. What did I expect when I started following Jesus? Did I expect for it to be easy? Did I expect for it to be comfortable? Did I expect for my problems to go away? Did I expect for my sin to be resolved quickly? Or whatever the case may be. And, and the reality is that if we expected one of those things and yet we realize that it's actually harder, we do not have Jesus to blame for that. Because never does Jesus in the Gospel of Mark or anywhere else tell us at the beginning that it is going to be easy to follow him. And this first call of the first disciples in Mark 1, 16 to 20 makes that very clear. So Jesus sets the expectations up front for all of us. And that is this, that to be a disciple of Jesus means that you must forsake your own life and follow him. Doesn't matter whether you come into this thing when you're five years old or 50 years old, to be a disciple of Jesus means you must forsake your own life and follow him. Now that term disciple, we need to define that because we're going to have to define a second term discipleship. So what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is just simply a follower of Christ, right? Somebody who learns from Jesus and who begins to look more and more like Jesus. And so that's what a disciple is. And so that larger term discipleship describes the process of following Jesus. So discipleship is that lifelong pursuit of Christ that every one of us is on. We are on a journey of discipleship. And what Mark 1, 16 to 20 tells us, tells us a little bit about how that journey of discipleship begins. And there's three ways we're going to see how this journey of discipleship begins. And what we want to say up front is that it's not just unique for these initial disciples. There's some details that are going to be unique for these guys, but the overarching reality of what it means to be a disciple and what the journey of discipleship looks like is going to be the same for every single follower of Christ, wherever you are in the world or here today. So how does this journey of discipleship begin? That'll be kind of the question that we want to answer. How does the journey of discipleship begin? Because if we know how the journey of discipleship begins, we will know a little bit better what to expect along the way. First thing to see is that discipleship, journey of discipleship begins when Jesus finds us. Discipleship begins when Jesus finds us. I mentioned Last week in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus offered that kind of indiscriminate, universal invitation to everybody to repent and believe in the gospel. So he freely offered that message to anyone and everyone. We know that's, that's our task today too, right? We freely give the gospel message to anyone and everyone who will hear it. But now it's interesting in our passage today, Jesus now is going, and he's going to specifically and intentionally choose his disciples. And so there are these two things going on at once, that the gospel is both freely to be offered to everybody, and Jesus is the only one who can actually draw people to himself. 
that Jesus and Jesus alone must come and find his disciples and he must come and choose those disciples. So it's not wrong to say that this is a period in time when I found Jesus, but it is maybe better to say this is a period in time in my life when Jesus found me. Because after all, Jesus is not the one who was lost. You and I were the ones who were lost. And so it's perhaps better to say that Jesus pursued me and that he found me just as he does with these original disciples here. Now, there's a couple details in this story that are a little bit surprising to us if we're reading it closely about why Jesus chooses the people that he does and where he goes to choose them. So the location of Jesus choosing his first disciples is a little bit surprising to us. You'll notice it says that he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee. Now, back in verse 9, we saw that Jesus came out of Nazareth of Galilee where he was raised. So maybe it's not surprising that Jesus is in the similar kind of place to choose his disciples. But what is surprising is that if if you're a Messiah and you're trying to start a movement that's going to change the world, you're not going to begin in Galilee. You're going to go to a place like Jerusalem where you will find the best and the brightest, where you will have the best chance of getting recognized, where the route to fame and popularity is a whole lot quicker than if you were to begin in backwoods, middle of nowhere, Galilee. And even on top of that, Galilee itself has a pretty checkered history in the story of God's people because Galilee was way up in the north. And way up in the north was often the first place where idolatry entered into the people of Israel's life. Because they were far away from Jerusalem. They were surrounded by a lot of other nations. And so if you read through the Old Testament, it was way up in the north where people were typically most prone to turn away from God. So they were not known for their faithfulness. In Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah gives this prophecy about the coming birth of a Messiah, he describes Galilee as Galilee of the nations. It is a place that's influenced and affected by things that were not good, that were not devoted to the Lord. And then in Isaiah 9, he gives that great promise that those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so it's surprising that Jesus goes to Galilee, but perhaps in some ways it's not because it tells us a great truth about God. And that is that the checkered past of a place like Galilee is not what's going to determine its future. And it's ultimately not going to keep Jesus himself from beginning his ministry there. The second thing that's surprising to us is is the people that Jesus chooses, right? There's four guys we meet in this passage. First, Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. You'll notice very similar things. The passage almost repeats itself. Verses 16 through 18, the call of Simon and Andrew is, is there. And then the call of James and John in verses 19 through 20 are about exactly the same. And so these guys, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, we know, of course, that they were fishermen. So they were not known for being the smartest or the brightest. They were not known for anything that they had accomplished in their life or for 
being from these great, wonderful families, they were just simply known by their jobs. That these guys were fishermen. They were not spectacular people in any kind of way. They were just wonderfully ordinary fishermen. And it's them that Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, decides to go and to choose to be his disciples. And if we need any more evidence that Jesus is unlike any of us, perhaps this is it. That he goes to the exact place that we would not have gone to choose the exact people that we probably would not have chosen in order to demonstrate that he does not need our talents, our skills, our abilities in order for his mission to work. He simply needs his own strength, his own competence, his own ability to see to it that this works. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they would later on be used in some pretty incredible ways for the kingdom of God. They would become some pretty important leaders in the early church, but no matter how great or how famous they would eventually become, each of them would only be able to look back to this day and say, I am here because Jesus found me. Does not matter how wonderful I pursue him for the rest of my life. I am only here. You are only here, follower of Christ, because Jesus found you. That's where the journey of discipleship begins. But also, from, from our perspective, these next two are from our perspective, discipleship also begins, not just when Jesus finds us, but discipleship begins when we forfeit ownership of our lives. You might say when we find Jesus as well, but when we forfeit ownership of our lives. You'll notice in this text, what does Jesus expect of those that he calls? He expects nothing less than immediate, all-out obedience and absolute surrender to his call. Verse 17, right? He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Then look at verse 20. Presumably, Jesus says the same thing to James and John. And immediately, he called them. So we don't get any indication that they were expecting Jesus's arrival. We don't read that they had kind of set their affairs in order. We don't read that they had been setting money aside for the day that when Jesus would come and call me, I'll be ready. We just simply read that he came and found them and that he decided to follow them. So all it, it seems all they knew about Jesus, maybe they'd heard John the Baptist preach a little bit. So maybe they heard that Jesus is the one who is greater than John the Baptist. He's the one who has been sent by the God of heaven, the king of kings, and he has come to me and he has chosen me and said, follow me. That might have been all they knew, but that was enough. 
And for these four guys, there was nothing in their life that was too great for them to give up in order to follow Jesus. And they did give up something to follow Jesus, right? Simon and Andrew, we read, says in verse 18, when they heard the call of Jesus, that immediately they left their nets. Of course, they were fishermen, so they left their livelihood at that moment in time. They left their source of income, their means of a sense of security. Simon was married. We know that he obviously stays married, but I'm sure he had a His wife had a few questions for him when he decided to leave his job to follow Jesus. We'll come back around and meet her later in the gospel, but I'm sure that was perhaps an interesting conversation. But then we read also that James and John, it says down, look at verse 20, it says, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So not only did James and John leave their profession, they also left their own father their chances for taking over the family business. Perhaps he was wealthy because he had hired servants, which not anybody could do, so perhaps they left a little bit of an inheritance behind. They left the certainty of of a future that at least will have this here. They they left behind that, that family tie that might have brought some sense of security to them. And we know that these four men are not alone in this, right? We know that all around the world today that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have responded to this call, follow me in places like China and North Korea and Afghanistan, where to respond to those words, follow me, means they will probably face harassment by the government and maybe even imprisonment or worse. We know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in places like Somalia and Libya and Yemen where there is a strong religious presence there that to leave that religion in exchange for Jesus or another might mean you are separated from your family or worse will happen to you. But even in places maybe that we don't often think of like Germany or England or Canada or even parts of our own country where to respond to the call to follow Christ may mean an instant loss of reputation among peers. May mean an instant loss of your status in society. All these things some have to give up. Maybe even some of us in this room Maybe even when we responded to the call to follow Christ, our families were okay with us attending church. That's fine. But when we brought Jesus into the dinner table or to the family holiday, things got a little bit edgy. That was not welcomed as much. Perhaps you have friends who are okay with you following Christ, but when you try and inject that into your relationship and open up a door to conversation about meaningful, significant things, immediately they begin to back away a little bit. Whatever the case may be, every single disciple of Jesus gives something up in order to follow him. If indeed it is Jesus that we are following. And so for these original disciples, 
it should be clear to us that this call to follow Jesus, it was irreversible. There was no turning back after they agreed to leave their nets and their families and to follow Christ. And so to return to our question, what did you expect? I think this is instructive for us as a church because we need to be really clear that when we call people to follow Christ, that we communicate to them what it will cost. We need to be really clear that we do not downplay the cost and elevate the reward. Hey, follow Jesus and you will just simply get eternal life. We'll skip past the part where suffering, difficulty, hardship along the way is coming, but we'll just go to that immediately. We would be missing the message of Jesus. Or perhaps if we just simply say, Following Jesus is so easy. All you have to do is just pray this prayer right now and your life will be good. All you have to do is just attend church every now and again and following Jesus, God will accept you for that. But to do that, I think, is to miss what Jesus himself might have said to those people. And perhaps even for a lot of us in a culture, in a city where Christianity is just the thing that everybody does, maybe a better question would be what what is the one thing in your life that you would be unwilling to give up if Jesus were to ask you for it? And unless you can say, Jesus can take everything away, and if I still get him, I'm good, then you're not ready to follow him. If there is anything in our lives that we would say, Jesus can have 99 of these things, but there's one that I'm going to keep for myself, then we're not ready to follow him with the way that he is calling us to. To forfeit ownership of our own lives means that we give everything from our church attendance on Sunday to the way we live throughout the week to even the desires of our own heart. We give everything to Jesus. We hand over the keys, the rights to our life to Jesus. And as good American citizens, if many of us are, we love our rights But the Bible does not care about our American rights in that same way. Those things are to be subjected to Jesus to say he gets to determine the direction I will go with my life. He gets to determine everything about me. I have to forfeit ownership of that to him. And now lastly, discipleship begins when we all agree to follow Jesus wherever he will lead. So if forfeiting ownership of our lives is kind of looking at where our life is right now or where we once were and saying, I'm not that anymore. Now we're looking ahead to the future and saying discipleship begins when we agree to follow Jesus in the future, wherever he is going to lead us. These first disciples were not told where they were going. They were not even told at this moment what they would be doing or even how they will provide for themselves. All that they knew is that we're going to be with Jesus and he is going to change us in the process. You'll notice Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men. One commentator looking at this said that fishers of men title, that's the oldest title for a Christian in the New Testament. That the most basic first and foremost thing that each of us is, is a fisher of 
people is one who goes after and pursues those who are lost like we once were. So if there's anything that should occupy a central place in our understanding of who we are as Christians, it is that we are on this earth so that other people might come to know Jesus and learn how to follow him. So if you're a parent, you have that role so that your children might come to know Jesus and learn to follow him. If you have any sort of influence in your workplace, you have that role so that other people might come to know Jesus and follow him. If you have influence in your school or with your friends, you have that so that they might come to know Jesus and learn how to follow him. So the strategy for building the kingdom, according to Jesus here, is not that complicated. He's going to find a few devoted followers. He's going to invite them into a relationship with himself And in the process, he's going to mold them into the kind of people he wants them to be. And then he's going to teach them how to do that for others. It's very simple. And and Jesus is banking everything, as we said earlier, on the fact that he himself is able to do this. Did you notice that there is a promise in this text? Even as there's a command, follow me, there is a promise, right? What's the promise? I will make you become something new. So they're given this wonderful assurance that if you follow Jesus, he will do the work of transforming you into the kind of person that he wants you to be. And so when you're frustrated on the journey of being a disciple of Jesus with your lack of progress... You look back to the promise that he made that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And you know that even if you maybe lack progress in that moment, that ultimately Jesus is going to fulfill that promise. Ultimately, he will make you become the kind of person that he has promised that he will. And so they hear this invitation, they hear this promise, and then they respond the exact same way, right? Very simple. Verse 18 at the end, and they followed him. Verse 20 at the end, James and John do the same as Simon and Andrew, and they follow him. They agree to follow Jesus wherever he leads, in a sense saying, we are ready for anything. A couple hundred years ago, whenever the church in Uh, the United States began to have a mindset of a need to reach the kind of most remote parts of the world with the gospel, Uh, they began to raise up and send out missionaries really for the first time to some of the farthest places that you can imagine, places like India, Southeast Asia, places that they knew that there was little to no gospel witness there. And quickly into that process of raising up and sending out missionaries, they realized that this was going to be something that was going to be very costly. That for a lot of these missionaries who went to these places, uh, disease, famine, difficulty, and hardship, sickness, and death awaited them. For others, they were met with resistance from the very people that they were sent to reach, and they they labored for years, some of them even for decades, without seeing a single person come to faith in Christ. And during this time, the Baptist Foreign Mission Society, they created this seal that was going to be kind of their emblem 
of their mission organization. And I wanted to put this up so you can see it. But on this seal, you'll notice in the middle, there's an ox. And next to him, there is a plow. And oxes were used, obviously, to plow and just to basically be servants. That was one use. And then you'll see behind this ox, there is an altar. We know in Scripture that that this was an altar of sacrifice. And so above that, you'll notice what it says. What does it say? Ready for either. So what they were trying to communicate is whether the Lord is going to send these missionaries into a life of faithful, slow, consistent service, or even perhaps a life of sacrifice, that we as God's people will be ready for either one. That we will follow Jesus if it means years of faithful labor and toil, or if it means that we have to sacrifice ourselves. And for us this morning, the command to follow me, that looks different for each of us. The questions that must have been on the minds of the early disciples, I'm sure, are in our minds as well. Will I follow Jesus if it means forfeiting ownership of my own life? Will I follow Jesus if it means accepting a future for my life that is different than the one that I had planned? Will I follow Jesus if it means the road ahead of me is is paved with a lot of joyful things or if it's paved with suffering and hardships? Will I be ready to receive the call, follow me as he gives it to me? Will I be ready for whatever may come? Let's pray together.